Welcome. You're listening to Value Add with Lars Coburn, bringing conversations and reflections that add value to your life. Well, uh, you're back listening to uh, part two of the conversation with Austin. And as we get in, we're going to just jump right in because I basically cut this podcast in half. So uh, he and I just kind of are transitioning the conversation from his work as a music teacher uh, to now how he, as a musician and as a theologian, uh, views and understands worship uh, in a church setting, what he looks for in worship at a church and why. And, uh, and so we have some good conversation uh, about worship. You're, you're, you're not just a musician yourself. You're not just a music teacher um, teaching it to people in a secular situation. But you're you're a worshiper. I mean, you go to church. Yeah. Um, and so tell me a little bit about how how does your understanding of music and we you already mentioned it a little bit. Like yes, I wish right. people wouldn't uh, sing the Chris Tomlin or the right. Hillsong, whatever. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. You as a worshiper. Yeah. Uh, what is this? You know, how does music add value to your worshiping life? Yeah, I think uh, hopefully I'm using this word correctly, but I don't want my music to be didactic like telling me something that I should be learning in the situation. I don't want it to be a sermon with a little bit of strumming in between. And I don't really necessarily want words along with it. So I I actually go to a church currently in the Episcopal tradition. So it's very uh, high church. They have a liturgy. But what they have is they have an amazing choir. um, And they have a, a... enormous organ sometimes they have an orchestra but along with that it's in a beautiful building you you're getting hit with visuals too you're getting hit with art stained glass stained glass windows high arched ceilings stone so my worship experience is very sensory mm-hmm. I, th- I think like i said i don't i don't necessarily want a worship experience that is um telling me what to be thinking mm-hmm. about god um I think rather worship is me telling God what I am thinking. That doesn't have to be through words, but for me, what's valuable is I want to listen to God, what God is saying to me in just the sensory overload of a choir, an orchestra, an organ, and less so words necessarily, Mm. or uh, someone speaking, over a guitar or praying over a guitar. So it's, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't want it to be an extension of the, an extension of the sermon, I guess mm. is what I'm saying. Yeah, so, the dominance, yeah, the dominance of the sermon in worship has really been a shift yeah. in the last 500 years for sure. I mean, I, I think um, uh, someone was talking about this, I don't know if it was a podcast or a book I was reading recently, I need to go back and find this. Um, yeah. But they were they were talking about the shift of the role of the pastor mm. um, from being kind of this holy this holy representative of God in the community to being the the expert who delivers the information. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, actually, our church services have become this teaching place where we we think that knowledge has to be conveyed mm. um, because that's the only place that people learn. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, the in some ways that that's carried up until like the recent decades of the invention of 
you know, live streaming and mm. videos and podcasts and all these sorts of ways where people can go online and, and get great sermons from Tim Keller and, you know, others who uh, are way better teachers, perhaps, than their local pastor. Yeah. Um, or the invention of the mega church where people gather thousands of people in one room or in multiple rooms, video casting, simulcasting a, a presentation. Um, those are modern inventions that are really kind of identifying a problem with a, with a pattern that we kind of adopted since the Reformation, where it's like yeah. the priest or the pastor is no longer curating and helping um, the parishioners and the people mm. uh, go, that, that seems to be a place to look to discover yeah. God. Yeah. Um, now, and he's showing up at your weddings or he's at your funerals or he's just at your workplaces or you, you come for mass every morning and, mm-hmm. and you discover God together with this holy man or this right. holy influence. Yeah. Uh, now the pastor is there telling you what to think yeah. um, and delivering the knowledge. Um, but now in our information age, you, you don't have to listen to the pastor. And so, you know, like now you can go f- discover your truth from whoever you want to yeah, discover right. it from. And so maybe the role of the, of the local pastor again has to shift back to how can I be in the lives of the people I'm with yeah. to help them discern and, you know, kind of discover God in a healthy way. Cause there are a lot of unhealthy yeah, songs sure. or pe- preachers or sermons and books uh, that are are telling people unhelpful things. I, I like that idea of. Um, I've never really thought. I've thought as a preacher, maybe I should stop preaching so long, you know, and let us sing more songs. But even you are saying, well, perhaps singing those songs are just an extension of my sermon still, and it's yeah, still I mean, the they, same problem. They can be. I think it's. Uh, I just is. It's not recognizing what forms you. Mm in a balanced way. Um, if you, like, like you said, if you, if you sing songs, if you sing lyrics, that's fine, but not recognizing that that also forms mm-hmm. your theology and what you think about God, and many times Jesus. Right. Uh, I think that's not a good way to do that. So for me, personally, yeah. that means I rather would just listen to instrumental music and experience the senses aside from just lyrics. Mm-hmm. It could be in another language, preferably. That, that, that's something I respond to as well. But still, it's, I think it's not music, vocal music in general. I think it's not realizing that it also forms you. That maybe is what I'm trying to get at more. Yeah. So for me, like I said, I, I don't want to be formed during worship. Mm. You know, I think I want some space, you know, yeah. to have some silence, some contemplation going on. Mm-hmm. And like you said, like that's a hard, <laughs> it's a hard thing to get in churches when, as you mentioned, the pastor is just kind of telling you what to think. Yeah. And then you walk from that and have a checklist of, this is what you're supposed to do during the week. This is the verse that's going to kind of inspire you for mm-hmm. the week. And then come back, I'll give you a new one. Yeah. Um, and then kind of respond, just doing what, the pastor is telling you, which is, yeah, I think it's, it's such an anemic formation in my, in my yeah. understanding. So, yeah, just wanting to tap on more elements I think is helpful. I think, uh, yeah, the role of the pastor, 
I'd like to talk a little bit more about the, the way that I think people are really delegating their formation process mm -hmm. to these pastors. And now, like you said, it doesn't even have to be, what do you think when I go to my local church, but I'm going to listen to, you know, a Tim Keller sermon mm -hmm. for church. Yeah. And it's just, it's like, it's just so anemic because there's no communal experience. There's never a time to see actually how does that play out in life with people. Mm -hmm. You know, this might sound great, but if you enact it, how does that look? Yeah. You know, how does this, how does this theology look in real life? So it's, I think it's, it's something I wish was more involved in the church, just a space to be silent and to develop some disciplines and kind of contemplate. It's just so hard to do, especially yeah. if you have an approach to church, which is we're here to entertain you yeah, because you're entertained by a lot of other things. Right, so. right. Well, and that goes back to, um, you know, some of the, some of the classical hymns or the, um, you know, putting scripture to, to music mm. can be helpful or even, um, uh, divine, you know, reflective readings of scripture where we place ourselves at the feet of the text and don't interpret the text, yeah. right? So um, the, I think what you're maybe even even looking at is how much we do of interpreting mm. um, God's voice uh, for for people, right? And so we don't we don't place ourselves at, at a listening posture through the songs, through the music, through the flow of the liturgy. Um, even in the preaching and the reading of the word, um, and I think, yeah, we're so ra we're such rational people that we want explanations, mm -hmm. and so we don't think it's a good sermon or a good church service if there's no explanation. Yeah, and perhaps we could still sing some of the songs mm -hmm. that we sing, um, or you know we could read some of the texts that we read. We could have some audible um, things in the in the liturgy still, but if we if we resisted the urge just to interpret everything, yes. we might actually learn some. And, and I felt like that was something that maybe we were introduced to a little bit in that class, um, the vocation formation class, mm -hmm. uh, that there was some invitations to these practices, these ancient practices right. of examine, of Lectio Divina, mm -hmm. um, of listening and centering prayer uh, that said, you know, these. They're kind of like a trellis. I think there's a video by one of the Fuller faculty that talks about the trellis, right? And it's not the it's not the grape arbor itself, but it's the it's the trellis that holds the grapes up, mm -hmm. you know. And so if you don't have the trellis, if you don't have those habits, those uh, the liturgy, the the music, the whatever that's going to hold mm -hmm. up, um, mm -hmm. you're not going to bear the fruit that you you want. And right. I perhaps we've put too much attention on um, a kind of poor trellis, I guess, if mm. you will. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's inhibiting our growth. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's well put. But, yeah, so, I mean, I, I think you're, the, you're really pressing into something good with the idea of the, the question about the role of pastor and, and all those things. Um, I guess I, I would press into a little bit more on, like, the, the idea of studies then. Mm. Like, what are you thinking about, um, so our class that we're just finishing now is an Old Testament course, um, and a lot of the stuff that we're talking about in that class is kind of reflections on um, how we might 
preach this? How much do I bring this into the church? That's so difficult. Um, Yeah, it is really difficult. So, uh, you know, what what are some of your reflections on that? I mean, I think we've talked a lot about the historicity of the Old Testament Mm -hmm. and divine violence, um, but I'm really curious about what it what you think the Old Testament really means uh, for your community mm. within this conversation of the role of a church pastor. Or, mm-hmm. and so, mm-hmm. um, you know, let's take the Old Testament class we're in and kind of reflect on that sure, for a moment. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, and this is a quote that we got from our last class, but the Old Testament, and it's always been something I've really enjoyed, you know, even more so than the, the New Testament. Mm-hmm. I haven't studied it thoroughly but i've always really enjoyed it for as we said in the lecture last class it's earthiness Mm -hmm. and that it just seems to speak to the wounds the messiness the complexities the 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 the, uh yeah just the blatant uh contradiction contradictions that we kind of deal with in life it's not so buttoned up um and i i think i've always responded to that more so. Um, yeah, I, the Old Testament class, yeah, it's just, it's been really helpful. I think one of the biggest things I've got out, in, out of it is that our professor talked about the idea of dialogical truth. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that in the, in the first lecture, or the second lecture. And it's that <laughs> sometimes truth or getting at wisdom is reflected in your dialogue and the questions you ask. Are you getting closer to God in asking right questions, not saying right answers about God? Um, But also that word dialogical, that there are multiple voices that can speak to any text, any experience that aren't necessarily negating one over the other, Mm -hmm. but adds flavor and adds fruit and adds wisdom to the interpretation. Um, So yeah, I, I think for instance, when we talked about Isaiah and in first Isaiah, either I think it's seven chapter seven or nine, where it talks about Emmanuel as that is such a messianic verse for Christians, mm-hmm. obviously, cause it's interpreted that way by the gospel writers. Um, but our professor really pushed on that to say, it can be this kind of the gospel writers interpret Jesus as God with us, but it also, it needs to mean something to those that were hearing about Isaiah's prophecy of a child named Emmanuel in, I think, uh, the 8th century BCE. So it, it's dialogical. It speaks to you are having these calamities right now, people of Israel um, uh, or Judah, during the time of Isaiah. But this will be a sign to show that things will pass. Mm-hmm. There will be a child born who, by the time he grows up to a certain age, all of this will be not fixed, but the circumstances will change. And looking forward to that as a sign, rather than, uh, sorry people, 400 years ago, before Christ, you'll have a sign of deliverance that will come in no time that you're ever going to be alive in. Which really gets at what is is God then saying if God is speaking through Isaiah to say, Emmanuel will be with you in 400 years. Not to say we don't have to wait in our faith, but mm-hmm. maybe 
it could be actual for them and there's effect there's efficacy for them in their time and it can be also retrofitted as Jesus is Emmanuel. Yeah. Those are both true. Yeah. They're both true and and it actually sheds light on our kind of feeling of is God with among us now, you know, like mm. we we live in a time of yes, we believe the Emmanuel has come, but yeah. uh, we feel in a sense of waiting, a sense of anticipating fulfillment of this child who will be with us um, when we'll fully be with God. The, the eschatology even changes, you know, as right. we think about it. And so, right. I mean, I, I think uh, just w- we've spent a lot of time trying to balance holding texts loosely and holding them really rigidly. And I think that's a great example of one of those ones where if we held it really rigidly to one interpretation, the, the Isaiah, um, the first Isaiah, um, interpretation of it had to apply to this time and only to this time. Mm -hmm. Um, if that's your rigid holding to the text, or if you're rigidly holding to the text of no, no, the, I first Isaiah author had to be thinking about Jesus for this to be appropriately used by the apostles. So Mm -hmm. that, you know, immediate response can't, there can't be any immediate efficacy for them. Then the, both of those really put you into a box. In some ways they put God into a box. Right. Um, Yeah. And I guess that's something that, you know, I was reflecting on with the class that uh, was helpful just to kind of continually press against the idea of like, let's, uh, let's be willing to let there be mystery um, in the Old Testament. And mm-hmm. in many ways, we discover that mystery through um, the ways that we realize there's just so many voices, mm. so many different voices. I mean, in Isaiah, I, I didn't know there were three, yeah, right. three Isaiahs, you <laughs> know. Um, right. So even that one, to kind of think about it, and one potentially could be a, a, a feminist voice, a, mm. a woman's mm-hmm. voice in right. parts of it, I think third Isaiah yeah. or something. Um, it's quite, quite interesting and, um, and just digging into those ways and actually seeing how source criticism uh, can help us discover hopeful meanings and things mm-hmm. is, is helpful. Um, yeah, it's, it's holding mystery in the right way. We kind of mentioned it mm-hmm. in a prior conversation that you hold it loosely, but that's not just limp-wristed, oh, I don't know, really, yeah. and yeah, just tell me what it means, or I don't really care to say what this reveals about God. But right. holding to it loosely and knowing the the nature of that mystery yeah. and what are the questions that say, oh, this reveals a mystery here mm-hmm. because I looked into its historical context. I looked into its genre. I looked into how is, uh, how is this sitting in the community that hears this. So it's knowing the nature of the mystery, mm-hmm. I guess, to nuance it a little bit. It's not just mystery yeah and then yeah. you have a good approach you know no, that i love i like that yeah because we we really do need to not just um not just throw up our hands and say i don't know right know? but right. at the same point we can start there with i don't know that's a great question yeah right and that leads us <laughs> and into, press in. yeah and press yeah. in and, and i mean that's i how i kind of approach some of these guys on the podcast that we listen to um sometimes where it's like well i mean for for me, I'm not probably as far down the road with process thought as you are, well, at least understanding it. But um, And I don't know that I, I buy a lot of it, but mm-hmm. I, I do use it a lot yeah. to, um, to just kind of identify some real inconsistencies or um, unhelpful thinkings, you know, about whether it's um, 
trans, you know, whether it's uh, the substitutionary atonement or yeah. other things about um, suffering and divine violence mm-hmm. and things. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I love um, being able to, to use that, if you will, as a flashlight to kind of illumine some of the, some of the ways that um, there's more mystery yeah. going on. And, um, and here's another way that, I, that makes some sense and has very compelling, uh, for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was in a lecture at the Pepperdine Bible lectures. Uh, this was, oh man, it could have been 10 years ago oh, now, wow. a long time ago, but it has stuck with me. Um, it might not have been quite that long. It might have only been like six years ago, but, uh, it was Randy Harris, uh, who's a professor at Abilene Christian yep, yep, University. Yep. I've heard him on the podcast. Okay, yeah. So Norsworthy and, and these other guys all are really well connected with Randy Harrison. And, and he is always one of the ones that packs the, the Smothers Theater at, at Pepperdine. And w- he was discussing um, women's, uh, women's inclusion in pastoral work right. in our church heritage, which mm-hmm. was a subject of very... Um, uh, you know, Pepperdine was one of the schools that was saying, you know what, this is important, and Abilene is also saying the same right. thing, and so a lot of the... And Fuller as well. Yeah, yeah, um, f- but they're rooted in a very conservative heritage, mm. uh, so most of our church, it's very hard, there's only one female youth minister in our youth ministry group of about 12 here okay. in LA, and most of our churches are of a more progressive view on those things. We mm-hmm. just still don't have very many women mm-hmm. in ministry yet. Mm-hmm. So even though you know, he was speaking to a crowd of people who are fairly amenable to the idea of women in ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, he's still speaking to a group of people who don't practice it very well. You know, it's not, we're not the Methodist church that I interned at that had yeah. all women pastors and a lay woman pastor who yeah. is like in her 80s. So mm-hmm. we're just further, we're, we're not as far down the road. And, and he was talking about how when you read these passages, you have to realize that it's like you're sitting in a dark room and you have a flashlight on and you turn the flashlight on and you point it in one direction and one corner and it illumines that corner really well and you see that corner really well and you go, why haven't I ever seen this before? But you're actually being blinded to uh, a lot of the other texts in the scriptures. Hmm. And so he was, he was trying to make the point that if you, uh, you have to make choices about which text becomes your lens for which you read the other text through. Mm. Um, for this conversation, obviously, he was talking about Galatians 3 yeah. um, being the lens. You know, There's no male or female, uh, Jew or Greek, right. slave or free. Mm-hmm. We're all one in Christ. That becomes a lens by which we then can read 1 Timothy, um, I permit not a woman to teach, or mm-hmm. other passages. Um, and I think one thing that was helpful in this Old Testament course you know, that idea of a flashlight really has stuck with me, but I, I saw it kind of coming up in, yeah. in many ways in what Professor Hayes was talking about, is that the narrative, the whole narrative, the collective narrative that's been uh, fashioned together by these different redactors, you know, the, the JEDP, mm-hmm. um, and however much you buy into those or whatever, but it's obvious in many places where there are these redactors that come in and add things and right. bring them together. Right. Some of them have common themes like Isaiah that have some things that weave through all three that make it seem to fit as a unit as a whole, but each one has a distinct voice, you know? Mm. And that's just a microcosm of the entirety of, of especially the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And so he was trying to say, yes, we're going to need to drill in um, to the, 
specific voice of this author, yeah. um, but at the same point hold it within the greater narrative of uh, how it's been collected and how it's been accepted as uh, Christian scripture and authoritative in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I found that really, really helpful yeah, uh, you know, uh, in, in thinking about that. Um, so uh, one of the things that I brought up with Professor Hayes in my conversation with him, and I just thought maybe for our last few minutes we could talk about this, um, a lot of the class was spent deconstructing uh, the su- quote-unquote Bible hour, Sunday school yeah. kind of stories of the Old Testament uh-huh. um, with the idea that we can't enter into scholarship, into you know, academic conversations and academic study um, without doing some deconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of whether it's you know our ideas of the flood or creation narratives right. um, we're kind of two hot button ones right. so what do you what do you think about that what do you think about the role of of a you know an OT 500 or even at the undergrad level uh, an introduction to Old Testament studies yeah. that ha- you know goes after deconstructing hmm. ways maybe that and, and I don't know if you had that personal experience in this class yeah. or maybe you were already down that road um, mm-hmm. yeah I mean uh yeah, I, I, I don't I don't think uh, I was wholly shocked by what we kind of experienced through Dr. Hayes in Old Testament. Um, but yeah, I just think the struggle with with me is kind of this slippery slippery sl- slope um, kind of fear that if historicity is attacked and certain instances of, mm-hmm. in the Old Testament aren't as they say they were or Daniel might not have been a historical person Figure, yeah. or we don't have great evidence for many other historical right, yeah, figures like there's no evidence of Solomon right. being a king right, right. so if, if her historicity is attacked um, I think the struggle is saying that the entire entirety of scriptures then kind of collapses Mm. um and i think that was a tough thing for people to navigate in in our class um sometimes sometimes that's a tough thing for me for me to navigate as well in the in the ot class sometimes i was just like yeah i'm understanding that human human hands have crafted because they're they're revealing a certain understanding of god at a certain time and the biblical canon is presenting this narrative to us in a certain way. Um, sometimes I was comfortable with that. Other times, I was very—I was just very uncomfortable because I realized how much force we, as the church, have in shaping mm. what, who God is, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of the trajectory of God revealing Himself to us. Um, so that. I don't know, I still struggle with that, that tension, um, that we have so much power to do these things, but other times, how final is it? How powerful is it? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I don't think that uh, we felt very uh, settled on the issue, right? You know, no, like in the no. conversation. And I, and I think even Dr. Hayes uh, had some ambivalence like he felt at times almost 
like he was trying to not backpedal, but at least like apologize almost for how he's coming across. Mm. And and I, I tried to reassure him that I felt like he was being very tactful yes. with how he brought up the things and he, how he kind of was pastoral in some ways. But like you, I, I still also go, I don't think he really gave me a good answer for how I avoid that. Uh, like, I, I'll be honest, my parents um, have asked, you know, are you going to have your faith when you graduate seminary? Yeah, you know? a, that's a real tension for sure. Yeah, because we, as we both know, you know, Harvard professors of Old Testament are atheists, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, some of the most prestigious, you know, people in the field of Old Testament studies don't, don't have any sort of Christian faith. Right. And, um, and that, that's concerning, you mm-hmm. know, when we try and think about how we're supposed to be studying something that is seen as authoritative in our community, our churches. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the average person doesn't, I don't know, I, I, I find that, at least for my wife, she's not that interested in getting the master's view yeah, right, of right. Uh, the historicity <laughs> argument, you uh-huh. know? And so how do we make this, uh, you know? And so that's probably where we should direct people to the Bible for normal people. Uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, I uh, want to respect our time, um, and I so appreciate this conversation. I think uh, we have stuff that we didn't even get to yet and oh, stuff yeah, we could revisit as a whole podcast. So um, I'm going to say we should get together again, um, good. which is going to happen, I'm sure. Uh, so anything you want to just kind of leave the listeners with um, before we, we check off? Yeah, um, I think just again again, talking about the old OT class and kind of leading us into this tension, I think we just have to realize um, that our faith is a confession, mm. which means it's something, some parts of it, a lot of the times it feels that way, are things that we confess to but don't really know mm. innately or rationally or fully until... And that until might never happen. So, yeah. But it's a confession. But that's not, again, it's not a confession where we don't fail to ask the right questions or a confession where we don't fail to address the world around us in not just antagonistic ways but protagonistic ways for things that are happening. We're responding to the ways the world is thinking about or culture is thinking about the wor- uh, um reality as it is and navigating with those and taking a hold of those but in a confessional way and not in a kind of commandeering way or saying this is the finality so i don't know if that makes sense but that's my yeah kind of approach in the end of this ot experience yeah no i I think that's that's definitely something i want to continue to explore um reading a book by parker palmer uh to know as we are known education as a spiritual journey and uh, he seems to kind of talk about this as implications, just what you're talking about of how do we, how do we confess? And in, in many ways, we use that word faith in our Christian kind of idea of that. It's like, well, I, I have faith. I trust that this is true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then for Parker Palmer, there's an obedience. that We live our lives based mm-hmm. on that confession, based mm-hmm. on that belief in what is true. Um, and that causes and shapes the habits and things that we engage in, the ways that we're in community together. So uh, I think that's something that's really close to my heart and something I think we, we need to continue to talk about. So um, we'll be back on with that, I'm sure, as the next uh, main, main podcast. But um, 
happy podcasting to you and yeah, uh, thanks thank you. for being on and this uh, wraps up our, our time together on value add uh, conversations that add value to your life well uh, always good times with Austin around the table having conversations uh, that go beyond even things we can answer uh, if you have questions about worship or topics that you'd like us to explore on the podcast. Uh, I'm going to be visiting again with Austin and hopefully having him on again just to have these conversations about seminary and theology and worship and music and the intersection of it all. And as uh, fellow students at seminary, uh, it's just fun to kind of be on this journey together. And so Austin will probably be a regular on the podcast. Uh, We're looking forward to having him on again Uh, next week. Is check out my uh, podcast with Sean Grant and also uh, who's my barber and then also my podcast coming up on the spiritual disciplines. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Value Add. For more great conversations and insights, visit valueaddconversations.com.